Oh, good morning. So, um, oh, somebody knows my name, that's good. Yeah, I'm not usually part of 10.30, uh, part of 9 o'clock. Me and my family, Maddie and three kids, they'll go to the 10.30. Uh, but I'm one of the students, uh, ministers here at Snack, and it's great to be able to work through this passage with you this morning. Well, what do you like at waiting? For me, I think it depends a little bit on what I'm waiting for. You know, when I'm at the dentist at the waiting room, and I start to think about all the ways I've neglected my teeth over the last few years. That's a scared wait for me. Uh, when I've been working hard all year and holidays are just around the corner, I'm excited. When I was standing at the altar and what felt like a lifetime waiting for my wife uh, to come and join me, uh, that was a nervous wait. Today, as we get into the second half of uh, Luke chapter 2, We're introduced to two people, Simeon and Anna. And these guys are both waiting for something. Uh, If you've got your Bible, pull them out. In verse 25, we see Simeon's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Verse 38, Anna's looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. And they've been waiting a long time for this. Uh, We hear they're well along in years. Verse 26, we hear Simeon's waiting to die. And verse 36, Anna is 84, which in first century Israelite time, uh, that's a long time. That is ancient. But despite this long wait, they're not scared, they're not nervous. Their waiting is hopeful and confident. It's driven by a deep conviction, which shapes everything they do. And we're going to see why as we work through our passage. So let's get into it. Simeon and Anna's long-awaited hope. We pick up the story at the end of Luke chapter 2. It's about 40 days after Jesus' birth. Verse 22, we see Mary and Joseph are taking Jesus on a road trip to the temple in Jerusalem. And in many ways, this was an ordinary trip. It's the kind of trip any good Jew would do. It was, it was the purpose of this trip was to satisfy the Israelites' laws. So for Mary, after giving birth, to be ceremonially purified. And for Jesus as the firstborn uh, to be presented to God. But what happens when they enter the temple is anything but ordinary, isn't it? Well, before we see these events unfold, uh, we get to know Simeon a little better. And in verse 25, we learn three things about this guy. He's pretty impressive. Let's have a look together. First thing is, he's righteous and devout. Now, righteous isn't, it's not saying he's perfect, but he's someone who faithfully keeps God's laws as an expression of his devotion to God. Secondly, we learn the Holy Spirit is on him. Have a look, verse 25. Now, at this point in salvation history, for Simeon to have the Holy Spirit on him, it means God is using him in a very specific way way for his salvation plans. And so when we hear Simeon speak today, we're going to be hearing God's take on what's going on. And finally, as we mentioned, the final thing we learn about Simeon is verse 25, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, when you hear consolation, where does your mind tend to go? For me, my mind kind of wanders onto sport. You know, like you play a game and you lose, but you end up getting this consolation cup. You don't get the main prize, but you get a consolation cup. That's not really what's going on here. Because sometimes a consolation, it's a comfort that you get 
in the middle of a great ordeal or hardship. And that's what we're seeing here. Simeon's waiting for that kind of consolation. Israel's right in the middle of a great trial. For around 400 years, things have been a mess for them. They've been tossed from empire to empire, from the Persians to the Greeks, and now the Romans. And these Romans, they're as, they're as bad as any of them. Like when they first took over around 63 BC, their soldiers entered the temple. And while, while, the, while the, um, the priests were doing their normal duties, they slaughtered them. 60 years on, where our story is based, and things haven't gone any better. King Herod, he was ruling Judea at the time, and he's a brute. He's a total brute. He made the decision to kill baby boys in Bethlehem two years and under. Israel, they're going through a great hardship right now. But God promised them a consolation. And that is what Simeon is waiting for. And from verse 26, we start to get a clearer picture of what this consolation is. Verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. At the center of this consolation of Israel is the Lord's Messiah. You see, as a faithful Jew, Simeon knew the Old Testament uh, he knew the prophecies, like in 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm chapter 2, where God promised to anoint a Messiah, someone in the line of David who would come, redeem his people, rule over them forever, a great nation blessed by God. And this is the, hard, this is the consolation that Simeon's waiting for. It's the comfort which will make these last 400 years for him seem like a distant memory. And what's more... In verse 26, we learn that uh, Simeon has been told by God that he would see this Messiah in his lifetime. And so Simeon waited. And this is the first thing we need to understand about Simeon. He's a wonderful example of someone who hears God's promises, and because he trusts God, he waits. He waits for God to fulfill the promises. And it must have been hard for Simeon. Imagine being in his shoes. 400 years his people have been waiting. A lifetime Simeon's been waiting. You know, I, I bet he's, he saw all sorts of Jews uh, just try and make the most of their situation, give up on that hope. Some probably capitulated to the Roman rule. Others would have left for a better opportunity in a new land. But Simeon waits. He waits for his sovereign God to send the Messiah. And as this story plays out, we see that God does not put Simeon to shame. The focus shifts now, and we see Mary and Joseph, they're entering the temple, and they're holding Jesus. And Simeon, who's moved by the Holy Spirit, he joins them. And when he sees Jesus, he takes him, he takes Jesus, and he puts him in his arms and says, praise to God. Verse 29, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised... You may now dismiss your servant in peace. Simeon joyfully declares he can now die in peace. And as he continues speaking, he explains why. In verse 27, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon's whole life has been directed to this one goal, the coming of the Lord's Messiah. 400 years of waiting for his people, a lifetime of waiting for Simeon, 
But now in this moment, Simeon's holding in his hands the Messiah who will bring salvation for his people. What a moment that must have been. And so Simeon declares he can die a happy man. And yet he's not done yet. He continues prophesying. And, and what we hear is that this is not just good news for the Israelites, but Jesus is a saviour who's good news for the world. At the end of verse 29, Simeon says, You may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. It's a beautiful image. See, Jesus is first and foremost the glory of Israel. But he, it's not just, he doesn't just stop there. He is a light for the whole world. This light imagery, we see it all the time in the Old Testament. For instance, in the book of Isaiah, at the end of chapter 59, we hear these words. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. It pictures a spiritual blindness, one that's caused by a world who's cut themselves off from God. They've chosen to do life on their own terms rather than God's. And every generation, they've got their own way of expressing this darkness. Uh, take, take mine, for instance. You know, we're sometimes called the expressive individuals. There are sayings like, you know, you must be true to who you are. The underlying assumption here is that as an individual, I'm the best starting place to navigate life. To have meaning, all I need to do is figure out what's unique and authentic about me. You know, my preferences, likes, dislikes. And once I figure that out, uh, that's the key to it all. You know, pursue that no matter what the cost. But of course, that is a starting point. It's a problematic place to go, isn't it? You know, as Jesus taught in Mark 7, the human heart's not where we find life. It's where we find evil desires, sexual immorality, greed, malice, deceit, envy. The list just keeps going. That's my generation, but each generation has their own way of expressing this darkness, cutting themselves off from God and pursuing their own desires for this world. But in Isaiah, God promised he wouldn't leave this world in darkness. Chapter 60, verse 1, we hear this. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord shines over you. For look, darkness will cover the earth, and total darkness the peoples. But the Lord will shine over you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to your shining brightness. God promised that his glory would come. And he would bring light to a darkened world. And as Simeon, as he holds Jesus in his hands, he says, this is that light. This is the savior of the world. The one who's come to bring people out of darkness and back into relationship with God. But as we keep working through, we see although Jesus, he's good news for this world, he's the great comfort for this world. He won't be everybody's comfort. In verse 34, Simeon tells Mary, he turns to Mary, and we see the mood shifts a bit. He says, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. 
They're confronting words. Jesus won't just be the one who raises people up. He'll be the one who brings people down as well. In verse 34, Jesus is a sign that will be spoken against. So the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Through Jesus, uh, people's hearts towards God are going to be revealed. Uh, if you go to a footy game, I'm from South Australia, so I go to the AFL. Maybe if you go to a rugby game, you can figure out pretty quickly uh, who's, who someone's supporting. When their team gets the ball, they cheer, they put their hands up. Uh, but when the other team gets the ball, you know, they boo, they hiss. At least that's what happens in Adelaide. I don't know about Sydney. Maybe you guys are more refined, but... But the point is, their response, it it reveals their heart, doesn't it? And in the same way, uh, the way people treat Jesus, it ultimately reveals their heart towards God. As I think about my friends, uh, they respond to the news of Jesus in different ways. For some, they're curious. For others, they're just violently opposed to it. And some are just a bit awkward about it. They wait for the conversation to pass when they hear about Jesus. And because of this, I can think maybe, maybe God, I can be tempted to think God will treat them in different ways. But that's not what we're seeing here. It's not the case. Jesus is the one who actually forces people to choose. He exposes their heart towards God. And each person has to decide, are they going to be for Jesus or are they going to be against Jesus? And as we read on, we see this is true even for Jesus' own mum. At the end of verse 35, we hear Simeon say these intriguing words to Mary. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. Simeon here is foretelling the pain and grief Mary is going to go through as she wrestles with her own son, who he is and what he's come to do. In a small way, in the following passage, we see this play out. Uh, There's the 12-year-old Jesus, and Mary and Joseph are looking everywhere for him for three days. And finally, they find him at the temple. And when Mary asks him, what were you doing, Jesus? He, he tells her, it's necessary for me to be here. This is my father's house. Ultimate, ultimately, we see how Mary has to wrestle with this when she witnesses Jesus willingly go to the cross, be nailed to wood to rescue this world, to save us from our sins. All people have to come to grips with who Jesus is, what he's come to do, even his mum. And you either reject Jesus, leading to a fall, or you trust him as your saviour. And he becomes your great consolation and joy. And what we see with Simeon is he's a great example of the latter. His whole life, he's waiting for this consolation of Israel. And as he holds Jesus in his arms, he rejoices. He takes great comfort in his saviour. Well, in our story now, we're turning to Anna, uh, 84-year-old Anna. And just like Simeon, we see that she rejoices when she sees, sees Jesus. Verse 38, coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna joyfully responds to her saviour in two key ways. Firstly, like Simeon, she thanks God. And as Paul tells us, thankfulness is always the starting point for somebody who recognizes Jesus as their saviour. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says this, Rejoice always, pray constantly, 
Give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. God's desire for all who come to know Jesus is to respond with thankful lives. And while this thanks is first and foremost, it's directed towards God, it's one that spills out into all our relationships. Have another look at verse 38. What does Anna do next? She gave thanks to God and she spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Simeon held his saviour, he said he was content to die. But for Anna, for 84-year-old Anna, she just bubbles with life. She's so thankful that she's met her saviour. She can't keep it to herself. So she tells everyone. She says, Jesus, the Redeemer, has come. It's a wonderful moment. Today we've seen an incredible event play out in the temple. For Simeon and Anna, their wait is over. As they have encountered this 40-day-old Jesus, they've seen their saviour the great consolation for Israel. And so they rejoiced. It's a wonderful moment. But I doubt even Simeon and Anna knew exactly how this salvation would play out. I doubt they'd know how Jesus won salvation through his life, through his death and resurrection, how in this room today, believers from all walks of life would gather together, forgiven, holy, Dearly loved by their Heavenly Father. And yet, even though today we've seen God's promises fulfilled in Jesus, like Simeon and Anna, we're still waiting in hope. In 1 Peter, we hear our hope described like this. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This world's not our home. Jesus is keeping an inheritance for us in heaven. The new creation will be no more tears, no more pain, where we'll have this overflowing praise for God and a deep love for each other. This is our great consolation, and it's one that we'll experience in the fall when Jesus comes back. We need to keep letting this long-term hope shape the decisions we make now. We need to keep waiting well for Jesus. And this is our last point today. How do we keep waiting well for Jesus? Well, four things from our passage. The first is wait expectantly. This is not the kind of passive waiting, you know, like when you're on a train going to work and you look around the room and everyone's just looking down at their phones, looking like zombies. You know, it's not that kind of waiting. Waiting expectantly for Jesus, it shapes everything we do now. A couple of Christmas ago, uh, we were at my in-law's house, at Maddie's parents' house. We're sitting at the table having lunch and we're talking to our daughter Daisy, who was three at the time, explaining how Christmas is when Jesus was born. It's his birthday, and this is kind of like his party. And Daisy, she's, she's pretty sharp for a three-year-old, so she thought it was unusual that Jesus wasn't at his own party. So she asked us, when's he going to come? When's Jesus coming? And we tell her, you know, 
We don't know when he'll come, but it could be any day now. So she sits for a moment. She tries to take this all in. And then she tells us, I'll save some lunch for him. That's waiting expectantly, isn't it? Anticipating Jesus' return and letting that shape every decision we make now. How do we wait expectantly for Jesus? We get a great example in 1 Thessalonians. In chapter 1, verse 9, Paul tells us about the Thessalonians who are waiting for Jesus. This is what he says. For they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. How do we wait like the Thessalonians? Well, first, we turn from idols. We're not people who live in darkness anymore. We're in relationship with God, so we turn from idols. But secondly, uh, we live for God. We let his priorities shape our priorities. We're in the light. We serve the true and living God. We need to keep waiting expectantly for Jesus. The second way that we wait well is to hold on to Jesus as our consolation. For many of us, I'm sure it's been a challenging year, and no one knows what this coming year is going to be like. But whatever happens, how will Jesus be our consolation in this coming year? And how will that shape how we live? I'm thankful to my wife. as She's someone who often points me back to God's promises. Uh, A few years ago, I was working as a lawyer, And it was a hard patch. It was a grind. The work was frustrating. The relationships were complicated. And each day just felt hard. Uh, So one morning, uh, I was probably grumpy around the house or something. So Matt thought, I need to do something about this, you know. (laughs) But uh, one morning, Maddie gave me a couple of gifts. Uh, The first thing was, I think there's a picture on the screen. Yeah, there's a picture from our wedding. uh, A couple of happier moments from that day. And so I put them on my desk, and when I was feeling a bit grouchy, you know, I'd look at them, and that would give me some comfort, uh, thinking about those happy moments. But the second present, which wasn't quite as pretty, it was just plain cards like this. Uh, because on these cards, Maddie had written uh, different words of hope, uh, different, different things that God promises to us. Uh, one of them was Lamentations 3. And this book... God's people are going through a seriously hard time, but right in the middle of these words. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Looking at those kind of words each morning, they reminded me to embrace Jesus as my great consolation. To remember that through Jesus, God's poured out his mercy on me and to keep waiting well for him to come back. Keep holding on to Jesus as your consolation. The third way to wait well from our passage, remember Jesus is the key to life. In Jesus, we have wonderful news of salvation. He's the light to a world that's in darkness. And every day we cross paths with people who are still in that darkness. People who still desperately need to know Jesus. Friends, family, neighbours, colleagues, parents, even the local barista. A little while ago, I was at a cafe with a friend, and he noticed that uh, the lady serving us had little cross-shaped earrings. So he just said to her, I like, 
I like your earrings. And that was all it took. From there, he learned about her Catholic upbringing, her experience with religion. And my friend could start to share the hope he has in Jesus. It was gold. You know, all he said was, I like your earrings. We've got wonderful news. News which fills our life with hope. And each day we have a chance to share that with people who are still living in darkness. It doesn't mean everyone's going to take it on board. As we learnt, Jesus will call, he'll cause the fall and rise of many people. But the only way we're going to find out is by sharing, that, sharing Jesus with people. Remember, Jesus is the key to life. The final way that we wait well is to encourage each other. Looking at Anna, we saw that her joy in Jesus, it just spilled out into other relationships. And who was it that she shared this good news with? Verse 38, she shared it with those who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. In other words, when she was overcome with the good news of Jesus, her instinct was to share it with God's people. To those people like Simeon and Anna who are waiting on God's promises. Sounds a lot like church, doesn't it? That together we meet and we rejoice in Jesus our Saviour. We don't usually hear for the first time this good news. We keep reminding each other of this good news. We keep encouraging each other to keep going. And we need each other too. Last year, as we were working through the book of Hebrews, it feels weird to say last year, um, but we're looking through the book of Hebrews at church, and in chapter 10, we're told this, Let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. In the highs and lows of life, it can be hard to keep our focus on our eternal hope. You know, in those good moments, we're distracted, we're complacent. In the harder moments, we can be discouraged. And God's kindness has given us each other to keep meeting together, to keep encouraging each other. And all the more as we see the day approaching when Jesus comes back. We've only been at Snack Now for a year, it's been, a, it's been a great joy to be here. I've cherished being able to come to church uh, on a Sunday and then meet up in gospel teams on a Wednesday. Because from what I can tell, this is a group of people who love Jesus, who love each other, and who keep encouraging each other to keep going, to keep waiting well for Jesus to come back. So keep going. Keep rocking up to church going to gospel teams, doing those little things each week for each other. Keep making each other a priority. We've been reminded today, uh, this is not our home. We've got an eternal hope, uh, but it's not in this world. It's in the one to come. And it's one that our our risen saviour has secured for us. And as as we keep our eyes on this eternal and wonderful hope, It shapes everything we do now. So in this coming year, how are we going to wait well for Jesus?